0: I kind of tackle my job knowing that it could be my last day. I don't take for granted the proverbial chair that I could be replaced at any moment. And me and my team just try to do the very best work we can. Everybody knows that not one of us can do the job and its I could never have the success that I do have if it weren't for my team.
1: I was on an aircraft carrier for a few years and while I was on the ship, I had friends from college who were in film school at USC. And so I would come up to visit them rarely when we were in port, <laughs> But I, I started to get to know the entertainment industry through them.
2: We've always sort of had the philosophy of just keeping our heads down you know, not looking over our shoulders at what anyone else is doing and trusting ourselves. So I think that's been our guiding light.
3: Hi, I'm Jim Miller and welcome to episode two of Origins HBO, present, past and future. A presentation of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. In episode one, we heard from three of HBO's most successful programmers, Chris Albrecht and Carolyn Strauss, who arrived at HBO in the 1980s, and Casey Bloys, the man currently in charge of all content at HBO and HBO Max. Now, in episode two, titled A Tale of Three Women, we'll meet three Bloys lieutenants, Francesca Orsi, who runs drama, Amy Gravett, who runs comedy, and Nina Rosenstein, who runs HBO's late night, specials, and unscripted departments. All three are on today's front lines of a programming war that is more demanding and more critical to corporate success than perhaps any other time in television history. The goal is to give you a sense of what these individuals, who have a great deal to do with what you watch from HBO on your screens, are like and how they think. During his five helter-skelter years at Saturday Night Live, John Belushi, easily one of the show's greatest cast members ever, was known for bellowing that he didn't believe women were funny and that they couldn't understand comedy the way men did. He was notorious for declining merely to read a sketch because a woman or women had written it. Of the roughly 10,000 reasons to which John Belushi were still alive today, one is the opportunity to learn what Belushi, or as Dan Aykroyd nicknamed him, America's guest, would be saying as he walked into HBO to meet its current dean of comedy, Amy Gravitt. As executive vice president of HBO Programming, Gravit runs all comedy development and production. On her desk right now, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Barry, The Righteous Gemstones, Somebody Somewhere, A Black Lady Sketch Show, and plenty more. Over her 18 years at HBO, Gravit has earned her stripes and medals on shows like Veep, Entourage, Eastbound and Down, Silicon Valley, and Flight of the Concords, among others. And she oversaw big hits Insecure and I May Destroy You. As we began our interview, I asked Amy about her background, which happens to be one of my personal favorite origin stories in Hollywood. You graduated from Duke. What year did you come to HBO?
1: In 2004.
3: Ah, the same year as Casey.
1: It was. We didn't start in the same department. My path was a little bit different just in general coming into the industry because I went into the Navy after graduating from college. And so I was on an aircraft carrier for a few years. And while I was on the ship, I had friends from college who were in film school at USC. And so I would come up to visit them rarely when we were in court. <laughs> but I, I started to get to know the entertainment industry through them. And so when I got out of the Navy, I got an internship at Section 8 which was George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh's production company. And they did a couple of half-hour series with HBO, K Street, and then Unscripted. And that was how I got to know everybody at HBO.
3: So how did your unique background, for this business at least, inform your approach to your job?
1: Obviously, for many reasons. I don't think my time on the ship was wasted. And I'm More grateful for it the older I get. There are just certain things that are instilled in you when you're in the Navy and when you're in an environment like that at such a formative professional time. There's a certain rigor to it. Obviously, there's a certain responsibility. There's a certain sense of being a part of a larger mission outside of yourself. There's discipline. There are things like the concept of completed staff work. Which is impressed upon you, which I still use to this day and try to teach my team to do the sense of, you know, don't bring a problem to your boss, bring a solution. It might not necessarily be the right solution, but at least it's a starting point. I think all of those things really translate directly to working in a large company like HBO. So, I think what the Navy did was prepare me for all of the executive skills, working within a department, managing people, all of that stuff. And then the thing that I needed to learn or certainly felt like I didn't know when I was an intern and when I was a young executive was the language of film school And I think that's the thing that intimidated me the most coming out of the Navy was I felt like everybody had a shorthand that I didn't have. And I didn't really know how to talk about movies. And I didn't really have my footing, frankly, until I started going out to comedy clubs and watching comedy shows. And I felt there I could sort of trust my gut more. And I I understood the language a little bit more, and it came more naturally to me, which I think is important in these jobs, is to sit in a seat where your taste lines up. I mean, also now I think I've come to learn that there is no secret language that people learn in film school. But yeah, I guess all of this to say, I think the Navy really actually prepared me quite directly for success at HBO.
3: Francesca Orsi isn't HBO's drama queen. She's HBO's queen of drama. Franny, as she's known, joined HBO in 2003 and earned her stripes on shows like Big Love, True Blood, and Boardwalk Empire. Shortly after, there was Game of Thrones, The Leftovers, and others. She became co-head of the drama department in 2016, and in 2019, had the department to herself. It's instructive to remember that after HBO's stunning parade of one-hour hits beginning with The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, and The Wire, there were years where the joke in town was HB over, as in over. But drama at HBO has been on a tear of late. Euphoria, Succession, Westworld, Lovecraft Country, My Brilliant Friend, along with limited series like Big Little Lies, Mayor of Easttown, and White Lotus. Franny is known to take her job seriously, and she'll be the first to tell you she doesn't take any given day on it for granted.
0: I um, don't quite have the pedigree that some people have in this business. I come from a working class background, decent education, nothing fancy about me. So I will sometimes take a step back and say, like, okay, it hasn't been easy. I've somehow survived. I'm still here and I should pat myself on the back but I don't often pat myself on the back. I would say I'm pretty critical and always demanding more of myself. And I never spend too much time rejoicing and celebrating in all our successes. I just keep trucking forward.
3: And when did you arrive at HBO?
0: I worked for the head of drama as an assistant. I think it was in the first year I began was 2003. So almost 18 years ago.
3: So like many of your colleagues, You've stayed at HBO rather than move about in the business. What do you think it is about HBO that has people staying for as long as they do?
0: Well, I can't stress enough that it's really about the work, the work that we do, the quality of the work, the ways in which everyone at the company pushes so hard to ensure that whatever it is that we're taking on narratively, it's at the highest and best quality and level. There's never a day that I feel like I can kick back or rest on my laurels. It's an incredibly challenging job and it's an inspiring experience to be able to work with very, very smart people who are always doing their very best. And there's no question that the creative minds that gravitate to HBO are such that we're so lucky to be in in business with them, to be able to work in ways that really challenge them as artists, as storytellers. And it's the ways in which they sort of unearth what it is they want to say that keeps me endlessly fascinated and makes me want to work harder and strive to execute their vision in the best way I can. I do struggle with some anxiety in and around the job. And it's really because I always want to bring my very best to any meeting I'm a part of. I always have to just remember that when I'm getting on the phone or I'm walking into a meeting to meet with someone, their heart and soul is invested in it. And I have to just turn off whatever it is that I've been thinking about, whatever other show that's taken my attention, whether five minutes prior or an hour prior or the day before, and just completely focus in, dial in to what that writer wants to take on and is trying to say. And I have to bring my own a game to that meeting in the ways that I challenge that showrunner for the show to be better ways that we ensure that it's ultimately as inspired as it can be and yeah it's not easy to just switch it on and off or to keep switching it on and on and on and on again but you always have to give your fullest attention to whatever it is anybody's working on because it's not like what I do which is a hundred projects they just have a few and I always remember and mindful of that
3: Attention, all you research biochemists out there who are feeling a tad bored in the lab and are contemplating a change of venue and occupation. After graduating from Lehigh University with a BS in biology and chemistry, Nina Rosenstein gets to play, caretake, and monitor the gardens of HBO stars like John Oliver, Bill Maher, Brian Gumble, Bob Costas, Sam Jay, Imani Jones, and others. It's a murderer's row of highly opinionated, articulate, confident, and empowered voices, which can often lead to a Rosenstein High Wire Act. Rosenstein is based in New York, befitting a woman who eschews many a Hollywood affect. She's not fancy, doesn't crave attention, and has a manner that almost dares you to underestimate her.
2: I oversee a lot of the unscripted late-night shows. So that involves all of our talk shows, Bill Maher, John Oliver, our comedy specials, a reality series, and I've taken on recently some of the sports pieces like Real Sports, Bob Costas, our new Bomani Jones show. So everything late night unscripted and mostly comedy.
3: And when did you get to HBO?
2: You know, I'm terrible with years, but I'm going to say 25-ish years ago.
3: So forever, forever, (laughs) my whole life. I asked Franny why people stay so long at HBO. What are your thoughts? It's crazy.
2: You know, I think it's part of the reason that, you know, we're doing as well as we are because we all grew up together. We all have, you know, similar tastes and instincts on the kinds of things we want to do. And, you know, we all trust each other. What else bonds you? We've always sort of had the philosophy of just keeping our heads down you know, not looking over our shoulders at what anyone else is doing and trusting ourselves. So I think that's been our guiding light
3: and, you know, it's proven to work. Coming up next, how does the network manage its relationship with showrunners? And what's the deal with notes at HBO? Their reputation is one of being hands-off. What does that really mean? They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely
1: mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners.
3: We got listeners! No way. Amazing!
1: Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. During an interview with Bill Hader about his show, Barry, I asked him about working with HBO, and he went into a 10-minute soliloquy on the joys of working with Amy Gravitt. Praise some Hader is quite a prize.
1: You know, there are no layers between us and the showrunner. There's no layer between me and Bill when we're talking right now about season three of Barry. He sends stuff over when it's ready. I take a look and... You know, sometimes it can be a shorthand on text, it can be a phone call, it can be an email if I feel like I need to sit back and really think about something. You know, you also need creative instincts. And I have the benefit of now 18 years of working on half hour material. And I think each relationship is different with each showrunner, just like, you know, any friendship is different or any relationship is different. I think what Casey and I developed early on was a certain process where before we even talk to the showrunner, we've read, we've discussed, we've drafted notes, we've revised notes together and really sat with the material as much as we can. You know, we don't approach any script, and th- I mean this from the pilot script stage, through a series finale, casually, I never talk to a showrunner without reading the material multiple times before I hop on the phone or step into the meeting. And I think I mean, that's, that's certainly the bare bones requirement when you're talking to somebody about words that they have put down on the page. I also think early on, Casey and I talked about this concept of actionable notes, right? We're giving notes that are actually something that somebody can put into effect on the script. And I think when you hear or have heard about like this idea of executive notes in the past, and it's sometimes can be, you know, a lot of opinions flying around or ideas of what we might have for what the characters would do. And it's not our job to tell any showrunner what the characters would do. It's not up to us. But what we can do is do say things like, I pause every time I read this section of the script for some reason. Like you should look at that area. And obviously it's not as vague as that normally, but we take our time with it. And I certainly take my time with it. Like that's the job. The job is reading and revising and refining and then figuring out in tandem with the showrunner when they want to let you into the process. So they have faith that we know what works for our audience and what works for our slate and that we're approaching it from a position of, I'm not here to change the story that you want to tell. I'm here to help you make the best version of that story. And so I don't really have an agenda for the show so much as I just want to step in and be an educated set of fresh eyes at some point in the process, both on the page and script phase and in the edit bay and cut phase. And, you know, it's different at different points in a series. It's different with each showrunner. And it's also important that we have a little bit of that distance. Showrunners and writers have talked about these stories in the room. They have put them on page. They've done many, many sets of revisions. They've watched them go through production on set and in the dailies and many cuts before we see them. And so we need a little bit of distance to sort of simulate how the audience is going to look at the show too. And it's, it's an important part of the process.
3: Franny, what's an example of something that keeps you up at night? What keeps me up
0: is really the fact that we've had so much success. And I've been very lucky to oversee a number of shows in recent years that have done very, very well. And I'm proud of a number of shows that are going to be coming out and and rolling out over the next year or two that are going to hopefully be hits not unlike some other shows we've done are. And it's hard to be on top because there's only one place you could go and that's down the bar is high. And for us to stay the best, it's no easy task. It's something we all have to work hard for. And sometimes there's just not enough hours in the day to achieve what we need to be achieving, but it's the sheer volume. The volume of agents, producers, managers, independent writers that may not have proper representation, but find you somehow and they seem to have something to say that you give an opportunity to. You know, There's so much material coming in By week's end, by Friday night at five, I think we have up to 40 submissions, various specs, and looking at the week ahead, a number of pitches that those writers looking to sell their hearts out and set up a show with HBO. And it's just a lot of work to get through. And what I struggle with and feel most pressured by is that I'm saying no to something that possibly could have been something. And I want to always ensure I'm not letting something great get away.
3: So there's an added burden of you rejecting it. And it winds up being not just a hit for one of your competitors, but also known to be something HBO could have had but rejected.
0: Yes and no. I do at times struggle with it. But if I'm saying no to something and my team and I have all evaluated it and we feel confident ultimately in the past, there's a lot to be said in terms of just getting up a pilot script and taking it all the way home as a series that gets greenlit and airs from season to season, or even as a limited, there's so much that is involved in making a show. So I sometimes find, more often than not find, that if I'm letting something go and it ends up at Netflix or at Amazon or FX or Disney, it ultimately probably was not right for HBO in that whatever ends up being elsewhere was not going to be the show that we ended up making because I didn't quite see it. My team and I didn't quite see it on the page early on. If it's not entirely there in that first draft, it's probably not going to totally be there come episode 10. Do you know what I mean? So you just know when
3: something's not right. For those out there who are dreaming of being Amy one day, what's a typical day like?
1: Well, the day can definitely be overwhelmed by meetings if you don't carve out time to read scripts and process material. And it's not just the reading of scripts, but it actually takes time to think about notes and draft notes and do that part of the job. So sometimes that's nights and weekends. And certainly when you're earlier in your career, most of your nights and weekends are spent doing that and taking that time with material. But My day is a combination of making sure I have time to do that. For example, I woke up this morning and read a script for the second season of Somebody Somewhere.
3: Have you processed what you think of it yet?
1: I've been thinking about what I want to say about it all morning long as I do the school drop and that sort of thing. And then I have a meeting right after this about a budget for a show. I have my comedy huddle this afternoon where we talk about submissions and drafts of development that have come in. And I have a pitch as well at two o'clock. So it's usually a blend of internal meetings, a general or a pitch, at least one or two a day, and then time spent with my team, either drilling down on a current series or talking about development that's come in.
3: Has this uber-competitive climate ever tempted you to change your, let's say, your way of doing business? Like, for example, hearing a pitch and then giving a straight-to-series order off of it?
1: It's funny because I'm always going to be somebody who fights for process and what our process is. And oftentimes that means at least taking a pilot step, if not the script development step. So to me, it's just an extra tool as you're building a series. I mean, the show that I really, I think, came into my own as an executive on was Silicon Valley. And that's a show that changed quite a bit between the pilot and the series. There were some characters that changed. We brought in Alec Berg as the showrunner with Mike Judge. There was... A lot of story also that ultimately changed in the pilot and I think about that show and how maybe it wouldn't have even come to pass if ultimately we hadn't taken that step but also having the benefit of having seen the casting process and the characters up on their feet and having the writers room have the pilot as a tool that they're writing to as they break the entire first season And I think especially in comedy, where you're drilling down on tone in such a precise way, having that as a calling card as you work on the show, I think is so important. So I guess I would say, you know, sort of having to think about foregoing that in order to land something It does feel like we're sort of taking away an important part of what makes an HBO show an HBO show. So then it's our job to basically figure out how we can keep that process with things moving in a little bit more accelerated way.
3: When we return to Origins HBO, we'll talk euphoria and succession with the woman responsible for both dramas, Francesca Orsi. There are a few sure bets in the scripted television game. Even the best programmers can't always predict how audiences will ultimately respond to their efforts. That's why I asked Franny if she ever gets surprised in her job and mentioned the incredible level jump in the ratings for Euphoria in season two.
0: I didn't anticipate it for Euphoria and I, I'm not sure if I just come from more of a place of humility. I, I always want the best for our shows. I want them all to be incredibly successful. But uh, at times I always wonder, will it be successful? Will people take the time to take this in? Will they get it? Is this maybe too much for them? You know, Euphoria is an example of one that's brought a lot of discomfort to a number of people. But I would say that the success of that show is in large part because of the platform of HBO Max, which I'm really grateful for. You know, I'm just so, so proud of Sam. I'm proud of Zendaya, who was an executive producer this past season and stepped into her role as an executive producer in ways that I wasn't even expecting, to be totally frank. I mean, she was all hands in it, heart in it, head in it. I mean, she just dedicated herself to the role of Rue, but to the role of an executive producer. So it was a real partner to Sam and to HBO along the way. I know how hard Sam Levinson works. I know that he literally put his blood, sweat, and tears into making season two. That it touched as many people as it did touch and is touching and will continue to touch. I'm not shocked. He's speaking something in a way that's so honest and so real and doing it with such powerful artistry. The numbers are where they are because it's exactly what it deserves. I just haven't been shocked by the monster it's become and how many people have connected with it. And that's what he deserves. And he's worked hard to achieve it.
3: Let's talk succession for a moment. How sick are you of hearing the show doesn't have any likable characters?
0: You know, I know that's been written and said a lot, but the truth is, I find those characters very likable. They're just unapologetic in the way they are wired and the way they think and the way they express themselves. And I think the reason why so many are connected and taken with them is because they really reflect back kind of what we're oftentimes thinking in our own heads, but may not be saying. So, you know, we're flawed, we're fractured people, we're damaged people. And it's what we see across the cast of Succession and all our shows. And it's the humor that allows that show to go down a little easier at times. It's the wit. It's some of the irony in which they interact. It's all the banter. It's the tone. But the truth is what they say and do isn't necessarily unlike what we will say and do in our own microcosms, if you will.
3: What's your appetite like now in the beginning of 2022? Are you satisfied with what you have? Or do you feel like, you know, you need to go on a buying binge and need to come up with more content?
2: I feel like our doors are always open. And we're always actively looking, you know, and going out and seeing who's got something really interesting. And, And, you know, I think if we're talking about specials, or really if we're talking about anything, I think for stand-ups, getting an HBO hour is still, you know, I hear it all the time. It's still the gold ring. Like comics today, they grew up on Carlin specials and Robin Williams specials, so they're they're all like, I really want to land here. So, you know, right now, I'd say for me, I'm focused on a second season of Sam J, which is a show that I really feel is so provocative, so smart, and I'm focused on that. And we're also launching a show with Bomani Jones. So I feel like having two shows like that that are in their infancy is, you know, important to get right. And how do you define success? For me personally, I'm always driven by finding shows that, you know, if I could say something broke the mold a little bit and made people sit up and notice it and talk about it, then to me, that's a success. You know, like with Bill Maher and John Oliver, even we're here. I feel like they're all, you know, shows that are just a version of something that people are familiar with, but still feels really fresh. I think it starts with partnering with the best people. So there's always going to be, you know, when you're bringing the caliber of talent that we work with into the company, there is a certain amount of trust and you know, you're going to get something good. So, so there is that, but I think we're always there as a sounding board. And I think as much as people will say, like I, you know, they don't tell me what to do. I think they do listen. we're always able to give thoughtful and smart and not overbearing kind of meddling so that it does feel like there is a certain amount of autonomy and you know i think one of the things that defines hbo is that we're so talent friendly and we do include them in every part of the process
3: in an effort to understand the success and crazy good reputation casey blois is now enjoying i asked franny and amy about their boss here's franny First
0: of all, I love Casey. Casey's probably one of the greatest human beings I know. He's been incredibly generous with me. He's seen in me things that I haven't seen in myself. He's given me opportunities that I'd say a number of people I worked with in the past would have never given me or unlikely would have given me. And I appreciate him for who he is as a person, as a man, and as a real leader. He's incredibly fair, he's smart, And the two of us honestly can't stop laughing. He makes me laugh harder than most people. And we just have fun doing the job, first and foremost. It's not always easy working for him because he's so on top of it. He's so driven and he's so sure-footed, just knows how to execute, whether it's a problem or whether it's an issue that we need to resolve. He cuts through it easily and quickly and confidently. And so there's a certain intensity in working with him. But I have to say he's, he inspires me every single day. And in large part, I do the job I do and I do it well because I want to do it first and foremost for myself, for my family, because I want to do great shows. But he inspires me and I want to deliver for him. That might sound insecure or pathetic, but I want to excel because I want to give back to him because he's given me so much.
1: I feel so lucky working for him. He's incredibly smart. He's incredibly hardworking. He is a very generous boss in that he shares credit, but also makes you feel incredibly secure when you stumble because we all do coming up in these jobs. He's going to have your back and you just never feel like you're going to be hung out to dry You know, whether it's outside the building or inside the building with him, he really believes in all of us and we feel it. You know, he shared all of his creative instincts with us over the years. There's been so much change over the past several years at HBO and at a broader corporate level. And I've reported to the same person the entire time. I mean... I feel so lucky to work with him. I feel so lucky to work with a talent that I work with. Like, I'm feeling like I have the best job for me in the world. That doesn't mean it's not without stress. There's a lot of stress, there's a lot of anxiety, but there's such immense creative fulfillment. And, you know, we have a huge platform to help people get their stories on the air. And it's so, fun to watch that process. I mean, to have had the run with Issa, just sitting early on, Casey and I with her and with our manager, talking about the pilot script for Insecure to seeing where she is now. It's just so gratifying to have been a part of that process. And obviously, certainly, Nothing that I could have imagined when I was the dispersing officer on the USS Constellation in the middle of the Persian Gulf in the summer of 1997.
3: (laughs) Coming up on episode three, we'll leave executive suites and go on location. You'll hear from the creator of The Wire and other landmark HBO shows, David Simon, along with his producing partner, Nina Noble, and Prentice Penny, the man who ran Insecure. Issa Rae's bold and tender portrait of life in South Los Angeles. Thank you for listening to Origins, a presentation of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. This podcast is executive produced by myself and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of C13. It's produced and edited by my brother-in-arms, Chris Basil, who always delivers. Many thanks extend to Terrence Malingone, who provides much appreciated production assistance in the trenches and our terrific Cadence 13 gang. Production coordination by Kelly Rafferty, marketing, PR, and graphic design from Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Hilary Schuff, and Kurt Courtney. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We'll see you next episode.